0: Hello everyone and welcome to CRAMSURGE, Clinical Research, Appraisal and Methodology for Surgical Trainees, where we pick a paper, fresh from the press, on a hot general surgical topic, we review it for you, we present it for you, we critique its methodology for you and provide top of the field expert opinion and teaching on research appraisal and methodology. My name is Gio Perrin and together with Professor Samabella Subramanian and Maria Digby we bring you CRAMSURGE from the wonderful region of the Yorkshire and the Humber. Welcome back everyone. Today we're going to have a look at the results of the covid Harem study, in particular the 90-day follow-up results of these antibiotics as first-line alternative to appendicectomy in adult appendicitis. Multicenter UK and um, Ireland core study. Published in the BJS, uh, in September 2021. Uh, Professor Sabah is then going to talk about propensity score matching. Enjoy.
1: Okey dokes. Uh, so I'm Gordon. I'm one of the CT1s um, in Huddersfield Royal Infirmary. I'm going to do a presentation today with uh, Geo Perrin, um, uh, a paper entitled um, Antibiotics as a first line alternative to appendicectomy in Adult appendicitis. Uh, 90-day follow-up from a prospective multi-centre cohort study um, that was published in the BJS in September 2021. And I'm just going to hand over to Joe or Gio now uh, for some background on the topic.
0: Yeah, so, um, well, we know from a variety of randomized clinical trials that have been conducted uh, from Ireland to uh, a variety of other countries in the world, uh, that antibiotics are a good uh, treatment strategy for acute appendicitis. There's a couple of questions that remain unanswered. Uh, one is related to quality of life, although we do have some data from um, the APAC trial uh, and the recently published Irish trial. Um, if you're interested in the APAC trial, go back to our episode two. That's where we discuss the 80 years outcome of that randomized clinical trial. Um, and a second question that remains unanswered is related to the applicability of this treatment strategy to the UK uh, population. And in this particular context, the authors thought that COVID, um, given our reluctance to operate in the early days of COVID, at least, would be a good opportunity to explore how antibiotic treatment could be used and what their effect would be on this particular type of uh, population. Uh, so ball back to Gordon.
1: Okay, so the primary aim of the study was to document the 90-day success rate of antibiotic management in acute appendicitis. The secondary aim was to review factors that may influence this outcome, uh, as well as assessing the cost and effectiveness of the antibiotic treatment. So using a PICU PICU, um, format, This is generally used more in RCTs rather than in uh, observational studies, but it works quite well here. So the population uh, was patients presenting with clinically or radiologically proven appendicitis. The intervention uh, was patients treated with antibiotics, and this was compared with patients who were treated with surgical intervention or appendicectomy. So the outcome, as previously mentioned, was the 90-day success rate. Um, of the antibiotic treatment, um, which wasn't detailed exactly what that was, but we presume um, it was either resolution of symptoms or not requiring a surgical intervention. And the secondary outcomes were assessing the factors that influenced um, this primary outcome, as well as the cost effectiveness um, as well. So I'm just going to hand back to Gio now to talk about the methods.
0: Yeah, so um, this is a prospective multi-centre core study that was conducted in the UK and Ireland, and it included uh, up to 93 centres, so a pretty extensive study with quite a lot of logistical effort behind it. And uh, the authors acted very quickly at the beginning of the first lockdown, Uh, so very early in the pandemic, in March 2020, they started collecting data, and they collected all patients that went through those 93 centres up to June 2020. Um, Interestingly, um, the authors conducted a very rigorous data validation um, whereby um, a a subset of patients for each centre was uh, double-checked at the origin point and if uh, data was found to be incorrect uh, over a certain percentage, which was actually quite high, above 95%, uh, data from that particular centre was excluded from the analysis. Um, overall, uh, inclusion criteria were anybody uh, aged 18 or older with a clinical or radiological diagnosis of appendicitis, which was treated with antibiotics or surgery. Now, um, whenever someone comes through the door with uh, a query diagnosis of appendicitis, um, that's not enough to include them in this trial. Uh, in order to be included, they needed to have a proper form of diagnosis of appendicitis clinically, and need to be started on antibiotic treatment for that particular diagnosis. Um, Go back to you, Gordon.
1: Okay, so the outcomes that they measured, as previously mentioned, the primary one was to assess the success of antibiotic um, treatment for appendicitis um, at 90 days. The study also compared certain variables between the groups, which included the length of stay and the death rate, um, as well as readmissions for these patients. It also um, recorded the operations uh, and interventional radiologies that were undertaken, as well as the ICU and HDU admissions during these patients' stay. Uh, Also, the 30-day complications and finally, the total cost um, Of these patients and their admissions. They also use propensity score matching, uh, matching for um, age, sex and frailty score, certain um, comorbidities um, such as obesity, diabetes, COPD and MI. They also recorded uh, the adult appendicitis score and the CRP. So Gia is just going to run through some of the results now.
0: Yeah, so they had um, overall three thousand four hundred and seventy-five patients, uh, which is a pretty big number. Um, Fifty-five were excluded as their primary intervention was radiological uh, rather than antibiotic or surgical. Uh, two thousand and eighteen patients had operative management as first-line treatment, and one thousand four hundred and two had antibiotics. Uh, one thousand one hundred and sixteen had antibiotics alone at ninety days while 286 at some point required an operation. Um, And we now have a quick glance at um, a table comparing uh, preoperative and operative variables concerning these patients. Now, uh, I won't bore you to death going through the entirety of the table from the paper, just a couple of points. Now, uh, we can see that the uh, frailty score was different uh, throughout the groups uh, in terms of who was treated operatively and conservatively, with a sort of propensity for frailer patients to be treated conservatively rather than operatively. Uh, comorbidity, as, um, as you can see on the table, are slightly different, although only in certain cases statistically significantly uh, different between the various groups. Um, if we go through to the adult appendicitis score, uh, we can see that people that were treated operatively tended to have a higher appendicitis score um, compared to people that were treated conservatively. Same goes for temperature, it tended to be um, sort of higher in uh, people that were treated operatively. Uh, What I really want to highlight here is, um, however, imaging and histology. Now, uh, if you go through to the third line of um, the imaging sort of part of the table, you realize that uh, um, a fair part of the patients that are admitted here, uh, had a CT scan, which is considered a gold standard for diagnosing appendicitis and determining the characteristics of the appendicitis itself, perforated, fecal, etc. Um, but as a chunk that's pretty big, about 30%, actually did not have that particular type of imaging. So, we're either diagnosed uh, based on ultrasound and clinical judgment or MRI in a minority of patients, um, which means that there is a subset of patients here that actually did not have appendicitis in the first place. And this is corroborated by the fact that actually in people that were operated on, uh, often, often is probably a little bit of a big word, but in a decent amount of cases, actually, the appendix was normal. Uh, And this number is alarmingly high in uh, people that had an unsuccessful um, antibiotic um, treatment. So 18 out of 277, actually, the normal appendix on histology, which means that they did not have appendicitis in the first place. Right. Um, Gordon, I'll let you go back to the presentation.
1: Okay. So, the outcomes that were then measured and the results um, found that 80% of the non operative group, so the antibiotic group, did not actually require uh, an appendicectomy or, or operative intervention afterwards. Um, And using propensity score matching between the two groups, certain outcomes were also measured and found. The length of stay was reduced in the antibiotic group um, being 2.5 days compared to 3 days in the surgical group. The intra-abdominal collections um, were again reduced in the antibiotic group being 3% in comparison to 6. Admission to ICU or HDU again was reduced in the non-operative group. complications overall were reduced in the antibiotic group as well, being 5% in comparison to 12. And the cost-effectiveness, it was found that it was um, far more cost-effective to be in the antibiotic group compared to the surgical group as well. So Gio's is just going to highlight some of the results from the failed antibiotic group.
0: Yeah, so um, as we mentioned, about 20% of people that were originally treated with antibiotics uh, ended up having an operation. Um, In this particular subset of patients, um, the length of stay was slightly longer, four days. That's probably a reflection of the sort of uh, watch uh, and wait strategy um, applied initially. Uh, Interoperative, uh, sorry, inter-abdominal collection rate was about 4%, which is very much acceptable uh, as a sort of general complication rate for this type of operations. Uh, And planned level um, of sort of two or three care was slightly higher in this group. Um, Hard to say if this is a result of uh, patients having appendicitis that is not going to settle before they get sicker and they ended up requiring a higher level of care, or if it is a reflection of rather... Um, perhaps um, comorbidities. Uh, overall complication rate, as you can see, did not change that much. So overall, this data supports the fact that a rescue appendectomy after failed antibiotic management is probably very much feasible with no significant increase in complication rate. So, ball back to you, Gordon.
1: Okay. So the limitations that were reported within the study um, showed that there was no standard antibiotic protocol in the multiple centers within the study, which was a, a big issue that we thought as well. Um, it also uh, mentioned as well that the diagnosis of appendicitis was at the clinician's discretion, which again opens them um, up to bias um, from this regard. Um, Gio is just going to run us through some of the other um details that we picked up as well
0: yeah uh, thank you gordon so um as me and Gordon were discussing this paper we were struggling to have a full grasp of what um is meant by resolution of appendicitis now um we presume that they mean that the patient is at home uh, without needing to be in hospital and without needing an operation. However, uh, in, in this group of patients, uh, there's a certain sort of degree of variety. There are patients that have near normal or normal inflammatory markers after treatment with IV antibiotics, have pretty much normal CT imaging, but are still heavily symptomatic. Uh, patients that maintain a, a low level of inflammation, uh, but go home with perhaps and encased abscess which has been cooled down and that would traditionally be treated with an interval appendectomy uh, and there are patients that are completely fine and all of them are included in the 80 percent um, inclusion criteria as gordo mentioned are a little bit um sort of uh, at clinician discretion and as we mentioned based on um the characteristics uh, both preoperatively. uh on imaging and intraoperatively and on histology afterwards, uh, a little bit open to interpretation because, again, in this cohort, there were patients that did not have appendicitis at all. Um, We looked through the propensity score matching um, and the variables that they used to do the propensity score matching. um, And there are at least two things that I would like to highlight here. One is that patients are not matched based on their uh, imaging confirmed diagnosis or not. So you could potentially have a patient that does not have appendicitis and one that does have it. And they are matched together because the other variables are comparable. Uh, And secondly, they do match specifically for CRP. Uh, However, CRP is already included in the adult appendicitis score, which is also matched for. So I found that a little bit redundant and potentially I would have rather used um, imaging confirmed diagnosis than CRP in that context. Um, There's another problem to me that relates to CT findings interpretation. So since reading this paper, I've been a bit more sort of wary of um, what it means uh, to not have a dedicated radiologist looking at scans um, when you are um, specifically looking at factors that can affect your failure of um, antibiotics treatment. We do know that the presence of fecalates, uh, for example, um, makes your likelihood of settling with antibiotics lower, and the authors actually do provide a fair amount of data regarding this. However, if a fecalif is not specifically reported by the radiologist interpreting the scan, is that if going to be picked up by the person that's actually sending the data through or even by the data validation system? It probably isn't. And just in the last couple of weeks, I had two scans with a bang-on, massive if at the base of the appendix that was not reported by the radiologist, probably because they didn't deem it to be be relevant. And finally, um, now, um, I think this study kind of highlights that we can treat patients with antibiotics for appendicitis, at least uncomplicated in the UK. However, we do have a lot of randomized clinical trials from around the world that do say the same. Does this paper add much in terms of the quality of life uh, and resolution of symptoms in 90 days? Probably not. Uh, So this leaves sort of a gap in terms of the clinical significance that this data brings uh, into the picture. And Bob, back to you, Gautam, for the conclusion.
1: Okay, so in conclusion, we feel the bottom line is that um, antibiotics may be used um, as a first-line treatment for acute appendicitis. However, through the limitations, um, it prevents us from implementing first-line antibiotics um, as a standardized treatment. So overall, we graded the um, paper a three out of five. And, and below, we've got a summary um, of our review as well. Thank you.
0: As usual, a brief overview of the discussion we've had about the paper after the presentation. We've highlighted uh, a very important point related to the relevance uh, that this paper has. Uh, Even when there's a lot of data from randomized clinical trials, like in this particular situation, uh, having a real-life large cohort study corroborating such results does add significantly to the external validity of the results that have been previously published. So this study is very important, um, as we mentioned during the presentation, in terms of highlighting the applicability of what we know from a very selected set of populations in randomized clinical trials to the general UK population. We um, discussed again how the propensity score matching model that was used in this particular study could suffer from fact that some of the variables selected were uh, present both as standalone variables and also as variables in the adult appendicitis score could potentially affect the propensity score model itself. We also touched on the possibility um, of treating uh, mild appendicitis even without antibiotics but just observations which, um, if this were to be the case, obviously means that these patients were excluded from uh, this study. And finally, um, we reiterated again how important it is to highlight that the results of this study are very much in line with what we know from uh, randomized clinical trials in terms of acute resolution rate for um, appendicitis with antibiotics. So again, this is a good um, supportive bit of data for our uh, day-to-day practice. I'll leave you to Professor Saba um, teaching session on propensity score matching itself.
2: So uh, this is um, just a very brief introduction to the principles of PSM. And um, by no means um, am I uh, able to give you a detailed, um, granular advice on how to do PSM. Uh, and it's really important to engage with statisticians um, who understand the the actual calculations and the modeling of PSM. This is just um the aim is to give us an idea of what to look for in a paper that uses PSM, what the potential applications are, and what the advantages and limitations of PSM are. Okay, so firstly, I think we should start off talking about what our observational studies, because this is where we use propensity score matching. So these are studies. Uh, which can be clinical or otherwise, that do not intervene in the natural history of a process of disease. So we've talked about observational studies before in one of our previous lectures, and essentially they evaluate relationships between variables. And when we say variables in observational studies, we refer to variables which come under the category of exposure and variables that come under the category of endpoints or outcomes. For example, If you're looking at uh, a study evaluating the relationship between smoking and uh, lung cancer, smoking is a risk factor or an exposure and lung cancer, which is essentially occurrence of disease is the endpoint. Similarly, if you're looking at studies evaluating uh, relationships between specific treatments and clinical outcomes, the treatment becomes exposure and the clinical outcomes, which can be um, death or recurrent disease, or success of treatment, that'll become the end point. And we'll just focus on uh, an example where we talk about a treatment and a clinical outcome. Now, the big problem with observation studies is bias. There are all sorts of different types of biases that occur in observational studies. And uh, the bias that we're gonna talk about today is bias due to the presence of confounding variables or variables that impact on both the exposure and the endpoint. Okay, now the ideal solution for this is to simply do a randomized control trial. And uh, but you know that for a variety of reasons, randomized control trials are sometimes not possible, not appropriate, sometimes inadequate, and sometimes not necessary. So, uh, uh, one solution then to address the bias due to confounders is to use um, statistical methods in these observation studies and try and minimize the bias due to the confounders. Okay, let's talk about an example. And me being a thyroid surgeon, I'll give you an example of thyroid cancer. Now, if you look at um, clinically node-negative thyroid cancer, there is a debate, there has been a debate on what the optimal approach would be. Now um, there would be some people that would say that a total thyroidectomy would be sufficient, and there would be others that would say that in addition to a total thyroidectomy, you do a prophylactic central neck dissection to try and reduce recurrence of cancer in the neck, to try and reduce local regional recurrence. So let's take this as an example, and uh, uh, assume that there aren't any randomized controlled trials that uh, address this problem. And that you're planning to, or you have access to a large registry that of thyroid cancer patients who've undergone surgery and you would like to evaluate outcomes after total thyroidectomy and um, or total thyroidectomy and centralinic dissection in clinically node negative, um, which is N0 thyroid cancer. Okay, so you've got a, a large population of thyroid cancer patients in a big database that you've got access to. Let's say the ones in blue here are the patients who have had more aggressive surgery. I'll refer to that as having had neck dissection. The ones in green have just had a total thyroidectomy. Okay. And in this particular example, we've got two variables that potentially can affect the choice of treatment, which is, um, like I say, either just a thyroidectomy or um, alternatively a neck dissection as well. And also these variables can directly influence the outcome. So one of the variables is gender. So you have men and women, and they have slightly different impacts on the outcome. And then you've got the size of the tumor or the T stage. So, some I said, this should be T1, T2. The T1, T2 are good prognosis tumors, and the clinicians might often choose to just do a total thyroidectomy. whereas if it's T3 and above, then a number of clinicians might add a central like dissection, even if there are no obvious clinically enlarged or radiologically enlarged lymph nodes, OK? So uh, these are just two examples. And, and as you would imagine, there could be lots of other factors that can influence your outcome and influence the choice of treatment. And these would be considered confounding variables, and that can uh, introduce bias in uh, observational studies. Right. Uh, let's just assume that you've looked at outcomes overall in these two groups of patients, and you find that the outcomes are generally equal. In other words, the recurrence rates are um, the same. So would you then say that these groups are genuinely equivalent, or would you say there could be bias due to the variables that you've discussed and many others that might have influenced the choice of treatment? And then you've got to keep in mind again that this is obviously not a randomized controlled trial. So patients haven't been randomly allocated treatment. There would have been lots of discussions about their risk factors, prognostic factors that would have been taken into account and the patient and the surgeon would have then made a choice based on these risk factors as to whether to go with total thyroidectomy or more extensive surgery. Okay, And these factors could be patient related, tumor related, related to the surgeon or the hospital and related to geography or the center, where there might be specific protocols on the extent of surgery and also on additional treatment, additional and adjunctive treatment like radioiodine and the dose of radioiodine and so on. Right, so this bias um, traditionally um, has been addressed by what we call regression analysis and multivariable analysis. We're not going to the details of this, and the downside to regression or multivariable analysis are several, and we'll discuss this a bit later on, but you could potentially do regression analysis. You could also say that you would match patients in the two arms, the no dissection arm and the thyroidectomy only arm, factor by factor. And, but then it becomes really complicated if you if you have a dozen different factors or confounding variables, then the matching process becomes almost impossible. So the solution then is to think about doing propensity score matching, or some people call it propensity score analysis. Now, and um, the just to look at this phrase in a bit more detail. And um, when you talk about propensity score matching, what does the word propensity score means? That simply means the probability of getting and um, allocated to or or having had the intervention of interest. And in this case, let's say the intervention of interest is the neck dissection along with our ectomy. So that will be the prep- propensity score. And then the matching and uh, propensity score matching is where you try and balance out the various confounding factors in the two um, arms. And once you balance them out, you compute the treatment effect in these balanced groups. So that is in brief what PSM is. Now let's go through this um, step-by-step. Right, so the first step really is to select the confounding variables. So you're looking for variables that are linked to both the choice of treatment and the outcome recurrence in this case. So uh, like I said, there could be a number of different uh, confining variables that could be patient related, tumor related and uh, and provider related. They could be gender, tumor size, whether the, the tumor is detected symptomatically or incidentally, age of the patient and so on and so forth. Once you've decided on these confining variables, you then have to calculate this PES score, propensity score for each patient, which is essentially the probability of uh, receiving the the treatment of interest, given all of these confounders. Now, this is usually done using logistic regression, so going back to regression, but this is uh, where you predict what treatment the patient had, uh, and then you're not predicting the outcome as you would do in the typical regression analysis. Occasionally, some, some other complicated methods can be used, but we won't go into the details of those. The next step is to use the um, propensity scores to get similar patients in the total thyroidectomy arm and the node dissection arm. And the way this is done typically or in most surgical research papers is by matching. That is the commonest approach. Although there are some other uh, methods that have certain specific advantages in some specific settings. Uh, And again, we're not going to go into the details. Uh, So we just um, talk about matching as the commonest way of getting the two groups balanced. You then check if the groups are balanced. When we say balanced, we mean with regards to the propensity score and with regards to the the baseline characteristics like gender and gender size and, and age and so on. Finally, you estimate the treatment effects by comparing these well-balanced groups, right? And, and, and that then uh, that's it. You're done. You've done the propensity score matching. Now, like we've discussed in this paper, matching may not be possible for many participants, which means that the two groups may actually represent slightly different cohorts of patients, which is probably why they have slightly different treatments offered to them. And to get reasonable numbers matched, as we've seen in the paper just now, we'll need really large sample sizes. But if you don't have large sample sizes, then the power of your analysis is reduced, or the precision of the effect that you estimate to be due to treatment is, all, is reduced. Now, like I said before, there are some other balancing methods apart from matching that might um, help in certain situations, whereby you include the entire data set and minimise loss of participants. But this is a big limitation of propensity score matching. The other limitation is that you could still have bias due to confounding variables, because you might have just adjusted for some confounding variables, but not all, because you don't have data on other other confounding variables. And there might be some unknown or latent variables. And effectively, if you really want to balance out all confounding variables, the only way this can be truly done is by random allocation. In other words, a randomized control trial. And you might be wondering uh, that you may have done some regression analysis as part of your um, clinical research. And why not just stick to what we know? Why do we have to do PSM? There are a few reasons. So I'll try and go through a few. So the first thing to think about is what's the idea behind this analysis? If you're doing regression analysis, The idea is to enable you to assess treatment effect conditional on these confounding variables. Okay, and that's slightly different to PSM, where the idea is to enable assessment of the effect in comparable groups. So uh, you make the groups comparable and then you look at the treatment effect. In some ways, it's a bit like a, a randomized control trial. So the next thing is the implementation. So if you're doing regression analysis, it's usually done at the end of the study, you collect all the data, and then you sit down to analyze the data and you look at all these confounding variables and you do regression analysis uh, to look at the effect of these confounders on your outcome. And these variables can be modified or influenced by the researcher. You might be tempted to add certain variables, remove certain variables, play around with the data. And therefore the process is a little bit subjective and less transparent. However, in PSM, there are two steps, a little bit like the randomized control trials. Like in randomized control trials, where participants are randomly allocated to one of two groups, in PSM, there's a design stage where you are creating treatment and matched control groups. And you are then checking if they're balanced and and similar. And then at a later stage, you're going to do the analysis. So, in many ways, it is less susceptible to uh, being influenced by the researcher. And the next difference is that uh, in regression, uh, the analysis itself, uh, which is done late, it doesn't really allow you to compare the two groups. Whereas in PSM, like I've explained, it allows you to see the two groups are balanced or similar. Now, if there are big differences in the two groups, as there often can be, because patients have undergone one treatment or the other in an observational setting, probably for good reason, and if there are huge differences in these two groups, regression will simply calculate um, what you want to calculate regardless of the big differences between the two groups, whereas with PSM it will limit your ability to make inferences. It will show you that the groups aren't getting balanced regardless of and however hard you've tried. And therefore, it'll limit your ability to make big inferences um, about your analysis. When it comes to confounders, which are the variables like gender and age and tumor size that I mentioned before, with regression, the number of confounders you can analyze in your regression model is restricted by the number of events or endpoints. And the rule of thumb is that and you can include one confounder for every ten events. However, in PSM you do not have that kind of restriction. Again, with regression, uh, if the events are rare, then there's less information available to uh, for you to estimate the association between the dependent and the independent variables, while in PSM it doesn't really matter. Uh, the rarity of the events is not a major issue. And finally, In regression, the variables, uh, you assume that they are uh, linearly related, whereas in PSM, you make no such assumption, and that's another advantage considered by the statisticians. So essentially, what we need to know is that PSM does have certain distinct advantages, but it's a complicated thing to do. Most of us aren't necessarily equipped or qualified to do these analysis, we need to sit down with the statisticians, have a good discussion with uh, with them, ensure that they understand the clinical uh, implications and the value of the confounding variables, and and then come to an agreement on what confounders to choose and what kind of uh, uh, matching you should do and how you interpret the results and so on. Right, so what have you learned? So I hope I've uh, uh, emphasized that PSM or propensity score matching is one way to adjust for variables that can influence both the choice of treatment and the outcome and how it helps to minimize what I call confounding bias in an observational study. Now, there are lots of advantages like I've uh, explained compared to traditional regression analysis. The methodology, however, is quite complicated. At every step of the PS modeling, and there are a number of different alternatives in which you can do the modeling, and these approaches are evolving. So um, it's really important to get help. So there are a couple of um, fairly easy to read papers um, that that you can see on the screen, and that is quite useful for non-statisticians, clinicians and researchers like us. That might be useful for you to have a look. And there are also some uh, reporting guidelines. If at all you do um, a project and you do PS modelling, then you could um, look this paper up and decide on how you're going to report your analysis. Thank you.
0: Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening. Until next time, keep running your life with our surgical podcast.